0: but a number of CCWC members have been taking part in a learning journey that has been for some a life-changing event. Some started on this journey before the COVID years, but discovered they had more time for this study during them. Some started their study at the onset of COVID and have carried on with it till this very day. Some think of this as a lifelong journey that will never be complete. My own on and off again journey got a serious restart after reading a group's IO message posted by Terry Schmizing in January, 2022. She recommended enrolling in some anti-racism learning circles that she had been attending. The classes are facilitated by Jody Feldman, a member of First UU Church in Portland, and I decided to enroll. Jody began her personal journey down this learning path when she realized she sees the world through the eyes of a white person. She recognized how this affects her behavior and thoughts. She says it has been challenging to discover how profoundly our country's foundation incorporated white supremacy and racism. Wanting to raise similar awareness for others, Jody set out to make a personal contribution by developing tools to help build greater understanding of the pitfalls when we see the world through only white eyes. By creating a series of learning opportunities that she calls seeing white, she found ways to share her knowledge, to include more people in that knowledge base and to help change our direction toward beloved community. The seeing white learning circles, which occur biweekly weekly for six months, use a carefully assembled curriculum comprised of various media. Attendees often find the content in these materials emotionally difficult to hear and digest. Every person I interacted with along my path at one time or another expressed rage at the history of America. We were never taught in school. But in the safe space of the small group Zoom classroom environments created by our facilitators, learners had opportunities to meet other UUs from a number of different congregations. As our comfort levels with one another increased, we found a place where we could listen respectfully and be heard with the same amount of respect. We learned from these examples how some difficult conversations in our society can and must take place in order to examine the root causes of the huge equity divides that exist in our country. Divides that will never mend until we can respectfully hear the stories of others and see the world through their eyes. Some of us have been making this, who have been making this journey are present here and on Zoom today. We're here to remember the dream of the beloved community left to us by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Yet right now in America, in parallel with his memory, we also see a push to dismantle the victories of the civil rights era in which he played such a key role. Many of my fellow anti-racism classmates are asking themselves how we as individuals and collectives can thwart the momentum of those who would undo the work and move this country backwards toward more division rather than forward toward greater equity. We've gathered today to share what we're motivated to do as a result of our respective anti-racism studies. I, for one, can no longer remain silent on this subject. Conversations about racism can be admittedly uncomfortable, but to truly bridge the equity divides that exist in America, we will all have to learn to leave our respective comfort zones and do it with respect for one another. So we're coming out of our Zoom classrooms now to make what the late Congressman John Lewis, an MLK protege, would call some good trouble. By sharing some of what we've learned on our journeys, we will continue speaking up because we cherish the dream. At this juncture, you will hear from Linda Minor and Jean Powers, who will tell you about how this learning adventure has impacted their lives. They would be followed by Ann Dale, who will lend her voice to the words of a great man to encourage us to keep cherishing the dream. Linda is our first speaker. She is a longtime member of the UUCCWC. At various times, she has served on the nominating committee, the Committee on Shared Ministry, the choir and the worship associates team. She also shares her gifts as a certified Tai Chi Cha instructor with members of this congregation. In my personal journey at UUCWC, she has served me as a mentor, my Tai Chi Cha spiritual guide, and friend. It brings me great joy to now bring Linda Miner to the microphone.
1: Thank you, Cheryl. My pronouns are she and her morning. I decided to sign up for those learning circles on anti-racism, because I felt I was ready for this work. For years, I had thought of racism as an ugly expression of bigotry taught to people by their elders or others in their community. And I was grateful that my parents had not passed that legacy down to me. My sympathies lay with the civil rights movement. And I thought Martin Luther King Jr. was a great spiritual and moral leader. I thought that time and education, and some political reform would eradicate the belief that some people were somehow better than others because of the color of their skin. And about 10 years ago, I began to realize that racism was so built into the fabric of my country and all of its institutions that I was deluding myself into thinking that it would just go away. I had started reading works by black Americans that were pointing out just how things were not much better for them now than they were over a century ago and why. And the rise of politicians who deliberately fanned the flames of bigotry in order to win elections spurred me on to want to understand why this was working for them. I wanted to know more. In the past year, through the learning circles, I was exposed to a variety of resources that were eye-opening, mind-boggling, often uncomfortable, as Cheryl said, and always thought-provoking. I now believe that this is the single most important thing I have participated in since joining this congregation I began to realize that anti-racism work is a lot like our church's interim work. We can't know where we are going until we know who we are. And we can't know who we are until we understand how we got here. That's where stories come in. Everyone's story is different and valuable for our understanding of who we are. Here's a story I shared in one of our sessions. I grew up in the suburbs of San Francisco. I spent a happy childhood in a new multi-ethnic neighborhood with friends whose parents were from the Philippines, from Mexico, South America, from Italy, Germany, and Scotland to name a few. Many of their fathers had come home from the war. And we kids were part of the baby boom and that housing boom that took over the nation during the 1950s. There were no black Americans in my town, my schools or my church. Black people I knew lived in San Francisco because I would see them sometimes through the window of the car when my parents drove us into the city. I never wondered why I only saw them in that one place. It was just the reality for me. Years later, when I got married, that same year, my husband and I bought a house in the mostly white community of Forest Grove. My husband had served his country in in Vietnam, which had paid for his schooling and made him eligible for a low cost housing loan under the current version of the original GI Bill that had expired in 1956. What a great thing this was. Two adults with higher education degrees, already working in good jobs, were easily able to afford a home and pay off the mortgage in only a few short years. What a slow learner I was. I was past middle age before I made the connection between that GI benefit and my childhood suburban neighborhood. I learned that black soldiers returning from World War II were not explicitly barred from accessing the benefits of that bill, no. The language in that bill had been carefully crafted to allow the states and local agencies to administer its benefits. So there were still banks that wouldn't loan to blacks, realtors who would not show houses in certain neighborhoods, local job training opportunities willfully denied to them and so on. No wonder that as a child, I was missing a neighbor, one I never got to play with. We couldn't share our stories with each other or make the connections that would strengthen the whole community. wasn't just a loss for Black people, but for everyone. It was personal. Just last week, I was reading, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. I know many of you have read that book. And she mentioned how her family had moved from the South to Los Angeles and then to San Francisco. Well, it seems that the opportunity for Black people to move into San Francisco and other West Coast cities had occurred because the Japanese population there had been interned by the government at the beginning of World War II and had been forced to vacate their homes and businesses, thus creating an opportunity. And so I connected another dot. Connecting those dots is one important way that we can understand how we got here so that we can move forward together into a better future. It has certainly made me become more politically aware and has changed what I spend my time on and which organizations and charities I support. I have a lot of catching up to do. What lessons might you have learned from others that may be different from your history lessons in school? Our next speaker is Jean Powers, who will talk to us about that. Jean is also a longtime member of UUCCWC. She raised her children in the church and helped with RE. She sings in the choir and serves on the transition team and the nominating committee.
2: Thank you, Linda. I grew up in two mostly white communities. My first 10 years were spent in a small town in Ohio. And after that, we moved to Eastern Washington where my mother's family operated a farm. In both places, people who look like me were the norm and the ones who wrote the history books. As far as I knew, this history was accurate it was when I started reading stories from other perspectives that I realized history is a lot more complicated than I ever knew. I've learned a little about the black experience in the U.S. over the years from black authors, historians, and podcasters, but all that really accelerated during the summer of 2020. After the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, to name just a few. I felt a growing urgency to do something. I joined a Facebook group called White People Doing Something that offered a space for white folks to learn in a safe environment without judgment. Every day that summer, I was reading or watching something new to help me see things from another perspective. And I was shocked at some of the things I was learning for the very first time. There was Wilmington, North Carolina's largest city in 1898. It was a thriving, diverse community with successful Black-owned businesses and a multiracial city government. That is, until a white mob staged a violent coup and overthrew the government. They killed at least 60 Black men, and forced city officials to resign at gunpoint, replacing them with unelected white officials. Between those killed and those forced to flee, the racial makeup of that city was altered forever. Families were scattered across the U.S. as a result of this one incident. Then there was Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, Greenwood, was a 35 block area of Tulsa with thriving black owned businesses, homes, and churches. It was kind of a city within a city. It was referred to as Black Wall Street. And in less than 24 hours, violent white rioters burned it to the ground. Some of them were even deputized and armed by city officials. And airplane pilots dropped dynamite over the neighborhood. Hundreds of black residents were killed, years of progress erased. Generations of residents continue to be affected by the losses. Neither of these stories made it into my history books. I have to wonder who writes the story? Who or what is left out? Who benefits from the omission? What is at risk if the truth is revealed? As I continued to learn, I started to realize how much of my own worldview I had absorbed from the dominant culture. For example, when my children entered school age, I chose a new neighborhood with almost all single family housing, totally buying the message that that was a better place to raise kids. I made the assumption that everyone who lived in the new neighborhood had earned their spot there and those who didn't live there had not. What I didn't consider all the barriers that Black families faced when it came to home ownership. Despite my best intentions, I had effectively chosen segregation for my family and we all missed out because of it. Addressing these systemic issues can be overwhelming. How can we work toward a more fair society? How do we recognize when we've internalized less than helpful messages From the dominant culture well that's where being part of a community is a lifesaver we don't have to do it alone and we can learn from each other there are so many ways to learn and grow with this community from sacred listening circles and heart-to-heart conversations as part of our interim work to covenant groups and book group discussions to anti-racist learning circles Offered through First Church, to casual conversations over coffee or a hike, or while lending a hand on Thursday mornings with property maintenance, or by making the services multi platform and therefore accessible to everyone. The list is endless. One particular accomplishment I want to lift up is the way we work together to counter voter suppression. Over 40 people from this community wrote postcards during each of the last three rounds to underrepresented folks, helping them access important information needed to cast their ballots. Working with the Center for Common Ground and UUs across the country, I believe we made a difference. Many thanks to Ann Dale and Jane Hogue, who organized and made that project accessible for anyone who wanted to participate. Ann has spent many years with us singing in the choir and serving as chair of the pastoral care team in the past. More recently, she's served on two ministerial fellowship teams, the transition team and the search team that brought us Reverend Ben, our interim minister. Her tireless efforts to secure his work visa has been a gift to all of us. Knowing Ann's admiration for the late Congressman John Lewis, we've asked her to read the text of an opinion piece that was printed in the New York Times in July 2020.